Testament, and uh, this is by the Peter that you meet in the Gospels, one of the twelve disciples. And uh, we've been studying this this winter and spring, this, this semester, if you want to put it that way. And uh, we're wrapping up our series this morning, so this will wrap us up for First Peter. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the order of worship. Uh, one of my very dear friends called me this past week, and uh, he had been the night before to a concert in, uh, in my original hometown, and it was a, a solo acoustic concert for, of uh, Jackson Brown. And this friend that called me to tell me about it is the guy that taught me how to play guitar, and uh, we've always loved that kind of music. He introduced me to Jackson Brown early on. And so uh, he got to go with his wife and a bunch of his friends, and, and uh, just, so anyway, he was already looking forward to it, but he said, it was just uh, slam dunk my favorite concert of all time. It was just Jackson Brown in a seat uh, on guitar. There's like 15 acoustic guitars lined up front or on piano by himself. And it was just so beautiful. It just washed over, over him. Uh, it may sound like at this point that I work for Jackson Brown. I don't. I'm just relaying what he, what he said. A love offering for Jackson Brown will be taken up momentarily. <laughs> but... Uh, but he was saying that, that a couple of things were amazing about this concert. And then, he, because he talked about the afterglow, not just right, you know, the night right after the concert, but the next day and two days out, just talking to his wife about it, talking to his friends about it. Had another friend that called me who went to the same one, said, best concert I've ever been to. Uh, one of the things was just getting to share that together, that just that felt sense that, man, we were there. And really, for the rest of our lives, we can talk about what that was like because we just enjoyed it intensely together. It was special. But the other thing was being in a setting where you could really hear lyrics. In fact, he e this friend emailed me the lyrics of one of the songs the next day and just said, just look at these words. And he was talking about that one of the amazing things about good art, whether it's good visual art or poetry or music or whatever, is this felt sense that you'll see something or, or something is conveyed. It may be under the radar through visual art. It may be directly through poetry or, or song lyrics. But th this felt sense that, man, other people have thought that. Other people have experienced that or grappled with that. And I thought sort of that I was the only person who felt that way or thought that way or thought that was special. And wow, they just described it better than I could have. And I guess, I guess there are a lot of people out there that like this or don't like this or struggle with this. That's what good art does. Now, we're coming to the end of First of, uh, Peter and something that has just been all through this letter is really one of the main reasons that I wanted to, to preach through First Peter this year is this theme of suffering. And one of the things about suffering when you're going through it, whether it's just general suffering from living in a messed up world to specifically the kind of suffering that Peter focuses on. And that's when you suffer because you're a follower of Jesus and you have His name on you, that you're identified with Him. You are, as a technical term, not just culturally, but technically, you're a, a Christian. You're a Christian. And that because of that, it might be as extreme as you get persecuted, you get tortured, you get martyred, or it might just be that you're just excluded or you're made fun of. 
or that it sets back your career. That when you experience that kind of suffering, there's all kinds of things that can happen inside of you. And a big one is this, is that rather than, uh, rather than tell yourself what is true, you listen to things. And a lot of what you hear when you suffer in this way are lies. And what Peter is hitting here head on is to say this, look, do not fall for the lies. And the reason that is so important is because he's been adamant, as was Jesus, that you're going to suffer in this way. How do you get ready? Let's wrap up First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it may be that as we listen now and yet again hear the word suffer and, or suffering uh, appear in the passage again, that this, this may not resonate with us at all. It may be that being identified with Jesus has really not brought suffering in any felt meaningful way. It may be that these words are jumping off the page right now because we feel it acutely. But we ask that whether we are indifferent to it or whether we can't wait to hear what comes next, whether we don't even believe these things yet, we pray that you would enable us to hear you. That right now we really will have a felt sense that you are speaking, that this is your word, and that you're giving us the privilege of hearing it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of you, um, I won't say who, but one of our members uh, shared with me one time that, well, I can't remember if it was daytime or nighttime, but um, one day when she was living in an apartment not far from here that she was sitting with some other residents of this apartment building, and, uh, and they were talking about just when you live in the downtown area, it's pretty highly likely that you're going to get solicited for money, maybe a little bit more than the average person. And... Um, and this name surfaced of a particular woman. And they began comparing notes. I don't know how big the group was, but let's say it was, you know, three or four people. And they realized all of them had been approached by this woman and all of them had given her money. And when this, when this person relayed this to me, I realized, I have too. I knew exactly who they were talking about. I remembered her name. I remembered the, the talking points and uh, have learned a little bit more about her since then and have 
reason to suspect that a lot of this is, is not true. But, you know, it, it drove home, all right, what, what we've got here, and this is, you know, it's not the prettiest way to put it, but it's a con. And the thing about a con is the good ones work on all kinds of different people. Or to use another example, I used this maybe a year ago. Um, I, was reading, uh, I was reading Dana's Southern Living. Not my Southern Living, Dana's Southern Living. And I was flipping through, and, uh, and my eye fell on something about New Orleans and the travel section. I grew up going to New Orleans. My dad loved New Orleans. And, and I was reading about Bourbon Street, and, and I could not believe what I read. It talked about that uh, on, on Bourbon Street, that the little travel writer said, this uh, kid came up to me and he said, Hey, mister, I can tell you right where you got those shoes. I can, I can name exactly where you got those shoes. And, uh, and so they make a bet on it. And he says, You got them right on your feet. And he, went, he wins the bet. And I thought, I cannot believe I'm reading this because that happened to my dad like 40 years ago. And they're still using the same tactic and it's still working. Well, okay, a good con works on all kinds of different people, right? In this passage... Peter does something that, that we should expect this from an apostle. We should expect this from a follower of Jesus. It's something that the Bible is not embarrassed about. He talks about someone who is a supernatural being. Now, he is a creature. He's not like the opposite of God. No one or no thing is the opposite of God. There's God and then there's everything created. A being who is created, who is very powerful, is largely unseen, and it's the devil. Now, I don't know how that lands with you, but again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on someone's behalf. I'm speaking on, from God's Word on God's behalf, and that God is not embarrassed. Jesus Christ is not embarrassed. The apostles are not embarrassed to say, this is a real being, a real intelligent being, who seeks the spiritual ruin of human beings, especially those who identify with God, who identify with this Messiah named Jesus. And he's incredibly clever about it. And it's like a con. And what he traffics in are lies. And if you're hurting, if your identification with Jesus makes your discomfort spike... He's got this just open window of opportunity with you. You're going to be more susceptible to listen to him than if you're comfortable or strong or on sure footing. If you're off kilter, you're kind of a sitting duck. And Peter says, I want you to know the con. So here's what we're looking at. Particular kind of hurting. Hurting because you're identified with Christ. What are the lies that go with that? And what are the truths that go with that that we need to know? What are the lies that we fall prey to? What's the con? And what are the truths we need to know? All right, verse 9 says this. Excuse me, verse 8, second part of verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here's the thing. Peter knows that that, that's the net effect of Satan's work. But it sounds from the way he describes it like the, the way the devil works is just coming through the front door, you know, dressed in all black, in this big plume of smoke and just, you know, follow me in the ways of evil. <laughs> you know, just maniacal laugh. And he never does that. And you, you actually have examples in the Scripture of how he works. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. 
Because when it comes to Adam and Eve, he doesn't burst in as this, you know, scary-looking figure and say, follow me in rebelling against the God who gave you every good thing that you enjoy. Resist Him. He comes along and says, can you really not eat from any of these trees? Look at the, this. Is, what a beautiful place. Can you really not eat from any of these trees? And Eve says, no, no. I, it's just this one tree that we can't eat from. And he says, well, I know, because if you do... You'd be like God. Can you imagine what that would be like to be like God? So he knows that if you eat that, you'd be like him. You'd know good and evil. But I, I guess you can't eat from that. Subtle. Not through the front door. Subtle. Think about this. When, okay, when Jesus begins his public ministry, um, when he goes public as the Messiah, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and to pray. And Satan just unleashes a direct assault on him. And you get, we get a description of it in the Gospels. And when Satan is tempting Jesus, he quotes the Bible. He quotes Psalm 91 accurately. All right, now that should tell us something. If, if you're off kilter, if you're weak, if, you're, if, if this being Christian thing, which was maybe euphoric at one point, and now it is not euphoric, you're off balance. What will it be like when he comes along? What are the lies? Now, I, there's all kinds of lies. But let me throw out three because I think they're being addressed in the text. One is this. Um, I thought the Bible said that God is all-powerful. And, you know, if he's all-powerful, he could take your hurting away. But he's not taking your hurting away. Now, I'm saying this from the devil's point of view. He has all power to change anything whenever he wants to, but apparently he doesn't want to take away your hurting. God, what should we gather from that? He must not care about you. He must say that he cares about you, but not really care about you. Number one. All right, number two. Is, and this is more inside of us. What I'm going through is unique that these other people around me, yeah, they may have problems, but they have not felt what I'm feeling right now. They have not been overlooked by God the way I'm being overlooked by God right now. And there's something that, that usually comes with this as a bundle, and that is I'm being punished. I wonder if it was that thing I did in my 20s. Or I wonder if it's because of all the mistakes I've made as a parent. I wonder if it's because of my secret. He's punishing me. And then the third one is this. This is never going to end. It's always going to be like this. That He's going to set me... God's going to set me up. And then I have to hurt. And He has all the power to come in and fix it and make the hurt go away. And He's not going to step in and fix it. So my whole life is going to be this way. This now is the new norm. Now, this may or may not resonate with you at all. And, and I, I want to say this. I, I had meant to say this a couple of weeks ago. As we're talking about suffering, hurting from being identified with Jesus' name, if this just does not compute at all, it is very, very possible that we have over-accommodated. In other words, in my desire not to be the weird Christian, in my desire not to be the, um, you know culturally naive, socially 
awkward, embarrassing Christian as I have nuanced everything. As I have shown that I'm up with pop culture and I ingest a lot of it and I can traffic in it and talk about it. As I've shown people that I'm not that weird, perhaps we have over-accommodated so that there's not a sense of being distinct. There's not a sense that a coworker would go, what is your deal? Why aren't you going to do that? We're all going to do this. Why can't, you, why can't you do that in your job assignment? We all do that in our job assignment. And the only good reason is because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But now we're not going to say that because we're, we're not going to be the weird Christians. Hurting. Hurting like Jesus said we would. All right, if those are the lies, what are the truths that Peter wants us to see? Look at what he says in verse 9. If the devil traffics in these, li- in these lies, verse 9, resist him. Firm, this is very important, firm in your faith. Something you've heard me say if you've been in this series is that I love seeing over and over and over how Peter and Paul, these big figures in the New Testament, very different guys, how they're emphasizing so many of the same things. If you get to the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we studied that in our church a couple of years ago. And and Paul's talking about spiritual warfare between the followers of Christ and the forces of evil. He says that the devil will shoot fire arrows, you know, like fiery darts at you. The way they used to fire him to set a house or a fort on fire. He's going to fire those at your heart. You've got to protect yourself with a shield. What's the shield? It's the shield of faith. You resist the devil not by standing there saying... I have authority to drive you away. You resist him by faith. What does that mean? Um, I was at a conference in Chicago a few weeks ago, and I heard a pastor in our denomination, Tim Keller, uh, who's up in New York City, he gave a a sermon about the, the crossing of the Red Sea, passing through the Red Sea in Exodus. And he said something, and I and I thought about it looking at this passage. What does it mean to resist the devil by faith? He was talking about, God says, look, you sit back, you watch how I'm going to save you. You sit back and you watch. And he parts the Red Sea supernaturally so that the Israelites walk through on dry ground where they would have been drowned. Did I say that right? Through on dry ground where they would have been drowned. All right. Uh, He said, now, if, if you had watched the Israelites walking through, you would have seen all kinds of internal responses. There would have been some Israelites walking through going... Man, this is awesome. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He created everything. I didn't know how he was going to work this out. This is even better than I dreamed, but not a surprise. Our God can do anything. But the majority of people probably would have been walking through just going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. You know, moms would be watching children, and I know children would have done this, like kicking the walls of water, going, you know, you'll destabilize it, don't do that. Just just look down and walk. Run, as a matter of fact. But, all right, Tim Keller made this point, and I think it's right on the money. Whether you walk through with great, uh, with great courage and confidence or whether you had an ulcer when you got on the other side, you were saved. What, no, whatever the difference in internal feelings and, and responses... If you went through, you were saved. Why? This is so important. 
And it's going to sound like I'm saying something heretical, but the grammar is everything. You are not saved by your faith. You are saved by the object of your faith. If your faith is in the living God. You're saved by Him through faith. And what faith looks like is rather than listening to yourself or listening to evil coming from outside of you, rather than react, it is to remember who He is, the object of faith. Who is He? Let's go back to the lies. Man, He's all-powerful. He has all-powerful. He, he could help me. He could make the hurting go away. He doesn't care about me. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. When the devil comes and says to someone, you know what? If I were you, I would be angry at God right now. And look, I mean, maybe that's a sin, I don't know, but I mean, even if it's a sin, look, you're already forgiven, so why not sin? When the devil says to a Christian, your sins are already forgiven, is the devil correct? Yes, he is. If the devil comes along and says, hey, it's all about grace. It's all about, you're only saved by grace. If you sin right now, grace covers it. Is the devil correct? Yes, he is. But what is he not telling you about the God of all grace? Is that God's grace doesn't just get his people into heaven, but his grace changes us. In biblical language, his grace doesn't just justify his people. His grace sanctifies his people. It changes from the inside out to beautify us to look like his own son. And you know what that means? Sometimes we have to go through things that it's like going through a fire that burns away dross. And fire hurts. And it's not, it's not the position we want to live in. But He is more concerned about our beauty than our comfort. He's more concerned about our beauty than our comfort. But He cares for us. He's not beautifying us to be a bully. He is beautifying us because He cares for us. He sent us His Son because He cares for us. I mean, if we met some homeless man that solicited money from us and rented him an, an, uh, an apartment for one month and paid all his utilities and stocked the place with all his necessities and all the food he would need, if he betrayed us and trashed the place and then just left and never talked to us again, if he did that after living there for two weeks, we would feel like we had absolutely absolutely had every right to hate that man for the rest of our lives, that no one I know has been betrayed this way. What if you had a globe full of people that kick against the God who gave them every good thing they've ever experienced? And it's this God that sends His most treasured possession, His Son, for sinners. It's because He cares about us. That's the first truth. He cares for us. The second is this. When you feel like, I'm alone out there. I've got Christian friends. They're doing great. Their co-workers think they're sharp and, and wonderful because they go to church or they don't cuss at the word or whatever. Uh, I'm catching heat because of it. Or I catch heat in my family because of it. And I have these friends with these wonderful Christian families. Well, I don't have that family. 
and every Thanksgiving and every Christmas and every summer vacation, it's a train wreck because I make a mistake and then it's, you know, oh, okay, well, the Bible reader, look at what they did. Look in verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's normative. It's global. And even though suffering is crummy, you will never hear me say, suffering's not that bad. Suffering is bad. That's why they call it suffering. I saw a movie one time where this guy said, yeah, everybody wants money. That's why they call it money. You know? (laughs) Yeah, suffering's bad. That's why they call it suffering. But here's the thing. When we suffer, almost like that Jackson Brown concert, not only are we fellowshipping with the original sufferer, capital S, who went before us, and it binds us to him, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, but it binds us to one another. If this is not real to you, and I do not say that in a guilt trip way, I can't manipulate you, believe me. But if this does not resonate with you, I suspect that these kind of gatherings, this thing that we call weekly worship, will grow increasingly boring to you. But when you hurt because you're identified with Jesus and you come back together and you sing about things like Him uh, assuaging our pain and quenching our thirst, you begin to see that that's more real than I ever dreamed. This is real. It's something that people all over the world are going through, usually more acutely than we are. He does care. This is not unique to me, but last thing. This will end. If it doesn't end in this life, it will end in the life to come. Uh, Look in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, and the apostles have this kind of a, they have this unnerving way of calling like decades a little bit, a little while. You know, Paul will say light and momentary afflictions by which he means torture, shipwreck, things like that. Verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that's the tenth time he has said glory in this letter. This man who was one of three people up on a mountain and saw this rabbi that looked like a Jewish peasant emanate and radiate the glory of God because he was and is God. Peter had seen it with his own eyes. He couldn't stop talking about glory. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, In a perfect world, we could look at all those last four verbs and talk about what they mean in the Greek and where else they come up in the Bible. But alas, it's not a perfect world. Let me just say this. Think about if you are suffering for being a Christian, how you feel. You feel beat up. You feel damaged. You don't feel as intact as you once did. You wonder about things that you didn't wonder about before. When you started off, you were so confident. You felt so great about the whole thing. And now you feel weird about it. 
and you have mixed feelings about it. You feel weak. You feel off kilter. And what Peter is saying is, guys, guys, if that's how you feel, you don't just need generic help. You need particular help. You need God to give you all the things that you lack. And look how he's saying, that's exactly what he'll give you. And you'll either experience that in this life. You You will experience it in some measure in this life. But the fullness of it will be in the life to come where He will restore you. Do you feel damaged? You will be made whole. Do you feel wishy-washy or have mixed feelings? All will be confirmed. Do you feel weak? You will be strengthened and made strong. Do you wonder deep down, will I make it? You will be established. Every enemy of God will see you on that day and you will look strangely secure. Strangely strong. Strangely confirmed. Guys, think about who's writing this. Think about who's writing this. Peter was the guy that when Jesus said, all of you are going to leave. You're all going to leave. Peter said, if I get killed, there is no way I will ever leave you. Ever. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said this, Simon, the devil has demanded you. The you is plural. He's talking about the apostles. The devil has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, singular. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. This is unbelievable. Jesus is looking at someone he has invested in for three years with his blood, sweat, and tears, and to whom he is quite literally going to give his blood, sweat, and tears, who's going to abandon him. And Jesus is looking at him without scolding and without rebuke, saying, you're going to leave, but I've prayed for you. And then when you return, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. And it's just too good that here, however much later, however many many years later, that guy is writing this letter saying, I want you to see what the devil is up to. I want you to be strong. And he's not saying this, but between the lines he is saying, if I can be strong, anybody can be strong. I denied my Lord, but he changed me. And you can bank on Him because when we are not faithful, He is faithful. What do we do with this knowledge? There's a lot I'd like to unpack here. I mean, when it talks about being watchful, we've unpacked that. Watch the devil's cons, his schemes. But the big one I want to leave us with is this, is how the passage begins. To humble ourselves to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Uh, Something that I have... I've probably said it and I've heard other people say it. And I think that this is what we perceive to be a great expression of authenticity is that when we are hurting, that we are going to tell God that we are mad at Him. 
that I'm going through this hard time. It's extremely difficult. I'm hurting. And I finally told God that I'm angry at him. I, I would advise that you file that under bad idea. But not because we don't need to be honest. But it's because when you look in the Psalms, you have people that are under God's mighty hand. They are hurting. I've been betrayed. The person I broke bread with has betrayed me. I'm in despair. Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, I'm hurting. I don't feel near you, God. How long, oh Lord? How long? That's a big one. but it's with reverence. And what this text is calling us to do is rather than do this, what the Old Testament called have a stiff neck, that if this hand, this God's mighty hand that's attached to all this love, this hand that's attached to this God of all grace, that if it becomes heavy on your life because you follow Jesus, that you not have a stiff neck, that you not have locked knees, but it's a call to go to the floor. To, to go to the floor. And to be honest. There before Him to be honest and say, I am hurting. I want the benefits of Jesus, but I don't want the fellowship of His suffering. And the dross is being burned away that I want the blessings, I want that euphoric thing I felt when I first believed in Jesus. I don't want to feel this way. There is a Father there saying, I know. But the way to glory is the way of the cross. And this is the good news. I'm going to end with this. How did Peter know that if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted? Because Jesus said it multiple times that his rabbi, his teacher, his Messiah multiple times said, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And if we are going to stand and say, I signed up to have my sins forgiven, I did, not I did not sign up to hurt, that is arrogance. But if you will humble yourself, you will be exalted. What God has for his people is not just forgiveness. It is exaltation and glory. Suffering now, glory in the end, forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we talk about the, the things that are largely unseen, it's hard for them to seem as real as the things we see. We see family that don't understand things that we do or believe or say. We see co-workers who do not understand why we might not participate in something or join in. Uh, we see the, uh, the friend or the neighbor who excludes us or distances themselves from us because they perceive that something is different. Oh Lord, we ask that we would not react to what we see but that we would live by faith. That if we have the cross, if we have the resurrection, then we know that You care. Lord, we pray that this would 
displace the lies in our hearts, that the truths of your love and your presence would displace the lies. Would you enable us to resist the devil that he might flee from us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.